The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. TRO, temporary restraining order. Thank you very much. Some crew I've got. 17 lawyers on retainer. And you managed to work it out. So that in a free market, a so-called free country, I can't buy some shit-ass stock every other asshole can buy. Congratulations. You're destroying the capitalist system. While everybody else in the world is embracing it, my boys and girls are f***ing it up. You know what happens when capitalism gets f***ed up? The communists come back. They come out of the bushes. Don't kid yourself. They're waiting in there. But maybe that's not so bad. Because you know what happens when the commies take over? The first thing they do is shoot all the lawyers. And if they miss any of you, I'll do it myself. Welcome, everyone. It's Thursday, December 31st, 2015. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on WBCQ 5.110 MHz. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to this, our second of two holiday editions of Just Right. We have a lot of new material for you, never before broadcast on our show, but previously broadcast in other media, namely on open-line talk shows featuring yours truly. You know, calling into open-line talk shows is a practice I've always encouraged in others who share a pro-freedom and pro-capitalist philosophy to do. The effect of your comments can extend far beyond anything you might be able to imagine, especially if you, ha- if you have, like, you know, some perspective or fact or experience that helps to make the understanding of a given issue that much easier for whoever might be listening. And it can often be the simplest thing in the world to do. So with that thought in mind, let me first begin by reminding and encouraging one and all that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ 5.110 MHz, and visit us at justrightmedia.org. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been a bit of a talk show radio junkie ever since I was a kid and listened to the very early morning edition of what was called the Ed Blake Show on CKSL Radio in London when my dad would tune in while he was preparing to go to work each day. And, you know, over time in in my area of London, Ontario, and extending outward from there, I guess I've earned a certain reputation for being, shall we say, outspoken in the community (laughs) uh, for two main reasons. I guess the first was that I've habitually called in as a private citizen on talk shows ever since I was able to do so, and the first time was on a show called The Bill Brady Show, broadcast on CFPL Radio. 
And, uh, of course, I participated in various radio and television panel talk shows on all kinds of issues. And the second thing is that I'm somewhat known to be affiliated with the Freedom Party of Ontario, another hat I occasionally wear in public when the circumstances call for it. That's why you may hear occasional references to these activities in some of the conversations you're about to hear over the course of today's broadcast. Now, we have a lot of new material for you today, as I said before, never before broadcast, but in other media where I've put myself in the position of being the open line caller on a talk show. And it's a completely different experience for me than doing this show, let me tell you. Unlike daily talk shows heard mostly on AM radio, Just Right falls more into the spoken word category of broadcast than the format suggested by the term talk show. Although you could very broadly refer to each as the other without being incorrect, you know, talk shows as spoken word and spoken word as talk shows, um, the cultural distinction, I think, would be lost, or the, the actual use. I see talk shows as being live and immediate with respect to the events and topics they discuss. They're kind of the newspapers of the airwaves. Spoken word shows are more reflective, Uh, the magazine format of the airwaves. Each serves a different function, and both functions are necessary and desirable in the context of public discourse. So as an example of this, and to kick off our talk show theme for today's broadcast, here is a November 26, 2013 conversation I had with CJBK AM 1290 talk show host Andy Utman on a subject that we have disagreed over for years and years and on one occasion we got so disagreeable that we ended up hollering at each other and I think he cut me off the air if I recall correctly. But I only tell you this (laughs) to help explain the introduction I got from Andy on this particular broadcast. Let's listen in. So what you're saying is the truth. We don't support our own. There's an interesting part of TVO last night where Diane Francis had written a book on how why Canada should join the U.S. And I could just hear all these people screaming about that. But some of the things she said were pretty interesting. Well, in a sense, a lot of people have, when they go shopping regularly, I'm not talking about the odd trip, uh, when they regularly take their hard-earned dollars across the United States, that's what they're doing. They're, they're in a sense, uh, uh, you know, it's not only treason, they're supporting another country. I know I'm going to get a lecture from Bob Metz in just a moment, but uh, I'm ready for that. Ken, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to do a little update on this car bit. We had our car club breakfast meeting, and guys are telling us that if you buy a car in the States, your warranty is no good in Canada. Yeah, there are a number of dangers involved in uh, uh, in saving that $3,000 on a Honda uh, CRV. Yeah, that's Even a, the Ford. No, that's a good point, Ken. I really appreciate it. Okay, here comes the lecture from Bob Metz, but I look forward to it. Uh, like I say, I love it when you agree. I love it more when you disagree because I learned something, and so we welcome Bob Metz. Good morning, Bob. Morning, Andy. Seems to be our annual favorite subject to disagree on. <laughs> Go for it, Bob. Um, I'm going to take a different tack this time. I'm going to challenge your assumption that people going over the border to shop hurts Ontario. I'm going to suggest to you it's exactly the opposite. Oh, I can't wait for this. I'm hoping you're right. Go for it. Well, I am right, because it's been proven through history. Adam Smith proved it. He suggested that when people act in their own self-interest, that's what promotes the general interest. Were it not for the competitive nature of the economy... Our businesses here would become lazier and lazier and give us worse and worse service. The only thing that makes them even 
get an inkling of having to compete is the competition from America and the freedom of consumers to go there should they choose. Now, as to the issue of money crossing borders, irrelevant. Irrelevant. Money crosses borders in mass all day long. But you know what else crosses borders? Goods. The guy that comes back with a, with a $500 TV and who only paid 100 bucks, he gained. The people who sold it for only 100 bucks, they wouldn't have done it unless they gained. It's a win-win situation. Wealth has been created. That's how wealth is created. As soon as you have barriers, trade barriers, labor barriers, you have poverty. It is so black and white that anyone could sit there and deny it. It's like denying reality itself. Scott, I got a proposal. Let's just shut down the White Oaks Mall, put on buses. We all go shopping in Port Huron in Detroit. You missed my whole point. You want the White Oaks Mall there. They're part of the competitive part. They're part of the market. It's not like they're going away. You get to choose where you go. I never go to the States to go shopping. My time's too valuable, and I don't need anything that would make it worth my while in my self-interest. But obviously many people are in that situation. And to suggest that they should make themselves poorer to preserve our unsustainable bankrupt health care system is, is, is to add insult to injury. So who's going to Canadians pay? are going over the border to the United States with their Canadian dollars to get health care. But they cannot get here because the law says they can't. Well, maybe you're with Diane Francis. Let's just uh, Diane uh, Francis, please no. <laughs> uh, let, let's eliminate the border and let's just join the Americans. No. What are, what are you talking about, Andy? I'm not talking about nationalizing anything. I'm talking about freedom. The U.S. can be a free country. We can be a free country. Britain can be a free country. Australia can be a free country. We don't have to be the same country. So the more people who go cross-border shopping, the better it is for Ontario. For, for, for everybody. For everybody in the equation. I know it doesn't seem like that in the short term when you're the loser, when you're the guy competing with the winner. Imagine that's how a fighter in the ring feels when he's taking it on the down. <laughs> By the way, totally unrelated, but we're going to talk about it uh, later in the morning, uh, just after 11 o'clock. Is Justin Trudeau the next Prime Minister of Canada? Ooh, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't say what you hope. I said, is he going to be? I think it's a possibility. I think anything's possible. And what does the fact that uh, that pretty face and those locks of hair and the perfect family standing for nothing say about politics? Well, it kind of identifies with the average Canadian voter. I mean, most most voters do not understand anything that that we might talk about on this show. Call me just after 11, Bob. We're looking forward to that discussion just after 11 o'clock this morning. We'll be back with more after this. Hi, Miss Wells. I need to talk with you about your spending, Ginny. It's only at 48%. Last month it was only 62 You know my mom's sick. Her prescriptions have been eating up my spending money. I'm going to have to dock you three weeks' pay. <sighs> Sorry. Be late again and you're fired. Each of you earns 200 a day. Half is deducted for your housing. You're also required to spend $80 a day. You could spend it however you like, but you must spend it. So we only get to keep $20? That's outrageous. Being forced to shop for things you don't want or need, as we just heard in 
that seemingly outrageous suggestion made in, in the sliders bumper we just heard is no different than what happens when government raises taxes to pay for services that are neither wanted nor needed for the public welfare in the original meaning of that term. We're taking some time out today to listen in on some past open line conversations in which I have participated. It sort of gave me an opportunity to express many of the same ideas and commentaries as I might do on Just Right, and to have them tested and directly challenged in other marketplaces of ideas. Now, from the ever-contentious issue of cross-border shopping, we now move to another couple of issues that affect everyone. Jobs and mail delivery service. The following conversations we're about to hear were originally aired on CJBK AM 1290's Andy Utman show of December 11, 2013, two years ago, on the announcement of the shutdown of the Kellogg's cereal plant in London. This was a sad event that was superseded by the same day's announcement that Canada Post, which holds Canada's monopoly on postal services, was going to raise its prices on first-class mail from 63 cents to 85 cents by, you know, that's 34.9 percent in one swoop on January 1st, and was also going to stop door-to-door delivery in the process by forcing customers to go pick up their own mail at Canada Post drop boxes called community mailboxes. Ironically, since the election of Canada's new Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, all plans to cut back on the government's unaffordable delivery of door-to-door mail service have been reversed, with the outcome of that experiment yet to be resolved by something other than the promised deficit financing. Here's that open line exchange as it began with a couple of callers from Canada Post itself. John, you're a mail carrier? Yep. What's your reaction to the news? laughable to tell you the truth okay that you're getting to the truth now why is it laughable because the <laughs> i'll use an example just just recently in the united states the united states congress or somebody passed a bill that, that they were going to stop saturday delivery well that was never implemented because businesses whoa we are used to saturday delivery and then they just continued on john um, le- go john, ahead did you hear the key phrase if they don't change their ways they will yep. soon be in debt to the tune of a billion dollars. John, they have Andy, no... Andy, where did that number come from? A billion dollars by, by 2020? Who, to, who told you that number? Okay. I mean, we, uh, wh- here, here's the thing. In the last 13 years, and you can look this up, the only year that the Canada Post lost money was in 2011 when we had a strike. And there was a strike, and then Canada Post also applied a bunch of money that, it, that, that was owing to uh, a women's group uh, many millions of dollars. Uh, we are a service industry. We're not supposed to make great profits or have great losses, but I'm telling you, it's a highly efficient business. And if you saw what we deal with, uh, and, you know, I'm going to say this, and this is going to blow you away, but if you add up all the different types of pieces of mail, whether it be parcels or, or junk mail, which you call junk mail, there's huge money in this. Businesses love this stuff. Uh, they're, they're paying a premium, a premium price for a premium product, and it's done beautifully. Um, there's, honest to God, I've been in the business for 28 years, uh, and I say this sincerely, there's more stuff now than there's ever been. I mean, we're processing more stuff than ever before. This John, call me back. Call me back if you have more, but I just can't leave one caller on that long. But John says, hey, it's a crazy decision because Canada Post is doing just fine, better than ever, if I understood him correctly. Ursula, go ahead. Hi, yes. Uh, I totally disagree. 
I worked with Canada Post for 33 years. I've been retired for three years now, and I knew this was coming 20 years ago. When you look at the situation, it's all about technology. When you get our large volume mailers, such as Bell, Rogers, tell us, who used to send a bill for every service that they have. Then they cut that out. Then they decide they're going to put all their service into one bill. Then they cut that out, and now I am a customer of one of them, and if I do not get my bill online, I have to pay an extra $2. You've nailed it, Ursula. It is technology. Absolutely. Totally what it is. Canada Post have no choice. I started as a Cop W member, and I uh, went into management. I was a supervisor for 21 years. And Canada Post doesn't have a choice. In order for it to stay on top or even just barely make it, they have to do what they're doing. And I'll give you a little example. Real quickly. I got a little old lady call me one day at my office and wanted to know, how can she get her mail into one of the boxes? Because she thought it was more secure. Wow. Because she have to have a key. She didn't like her check coming into her mailbox where anybody can take it out. Unfortunately, she was in an older area. Ursula, and at that time, Ursula, she had no choice. We're running over time. Let me ask you quickly. Is there a future for Canada Post? Uh, not the way it is right now. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, we're going to get to Bob Metz in just a moment. We're going to sneak in Brian. Brian, go ahead. Hey, Andy. can barely hear you, Brian. Are you yeah. there? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, just uh, want to get my two cents on it. I think the stamps going from what they are today up to 85 cents or whatever the number is is ludicrous. It's, uh, I'm not, I, I can't do the math right now, but it's got to be, it's got to be close to or over 20%. It is. And how they think small businesses, you know, across the country can absorb those kinds of increases. I think it's just, you know, it's outrageous, especially yesterday when we're hearing about the OLG and 7,900 of their members, Sunshine List making over a hundred grand a year. You know, these government organizations are all out of control, and uh, something needs to be done. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, okay, Bob Metz. Uh, Bob, uh, what's your reaction to the Canada Post news? I found it insulting. How dare a, a business, supposedly a business, but it has a government monopoly, tell the people that they can't have door-to-door delivery? Okay, if you're getting out of the business, privatize it. You'd be surprised how cheap you could deliver door-to-door if private industry could get into the business. You'd have smaller businesses just delivering door-to-door, say, in a municipality. You could have other businesses just specializing between cities. And you'd be surprised how cheaply they can do it because they can use technology, too. And the problem is that when the government says, or Canada Post says, that there's no more door-to-door delivery, that's the law. You can't, you can't, it's not even legal for you to put a, a piece of mail in somebody else's mailbox, technically. They could arrest you for that. That is a fascinating point. Bob, I was just going to ask you, what's to stop a private company from starting up their own door-to-door mail delivery system? The law. And that's always been the problem. And Canada Post has been the author of its own demise. I've, I've, I've been running a political party, and we use mail a lot. And I can tell you, every policy they've brought up in the last 30 years has been business-destroying for them. They're literally throwing away money. And, you know, raising prices is not the way to attract business. 
And it's, it's, just, it's just insane, utterly insane. In it's, fact, Bob, let me just ask you about that. Raising the price of a stamp from 63 to 85 cents, are they not deliberately shutting down their mail service? Who's going to mail a Christmas card if it costs them a buck? Well, precisely. So, so let, look at all the people that are unemployed today. Can you imagine how good some of them could run a business? And, and, I mean, this, this is an opportunity that should be sitting there for hundreds and hundreds, thousands of people to get into, into their own private businesses, make profits. Now, mind you, we have a problem in Ontario, don't we? Everything's expensive here. And, and part of the problem with prices going up isn't what a lot of people think. It's because the value of the dollar is dropping like a rock. Both the Canadian and the U.S. dollar are going down relative to what you can buy with them. Obama's flooding the, uh, the, the North American economy with, with currency. Okay, Bob, uh, we know? have just a moment left. Uh, so just wrap up the Canada Post situation and then a quick comment, if you would, on Kellogg's. Well, on Canada Post, I think that, that we should be allowed to have competition there and, and close the company down. They, they're, all, they're just busy paying pensions. That's where all that money's going. And as far as Kellogg's goes, I think that, that you know, if people want jobs, I don't think that the issue is the union here. I think it's just about Kellogg's having to survive. I don't think their foreign company is going to be selling us cereal. I think that's to reach their market over there. And people who want to boycott Kellogg's, hello, there's still a Kellogg's plant going to be in Ontario. So you want to put fellow Ontarians out of business. You, you just can't win with that nonsense. And hating, and hating the employer, pardon me, not the unions, but hating the employer and all that envy and, 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 and you know, bite the hand that feeds you kind of thing, uh, that just doesn't help. Okay, Bob, great call. 1030 News Update when we come back. And that call was from December 11th, 2013. Now, to my own surprise... It raised quite a storm of reaction and ended up being played several times on Andy Utman's show, including again on the following day, December 12th, 2013. This was one of the conversations that took place after that. We could sell a stamp for 25 cents and still make a killing. Wow. Isn't that something? Absolutely. And I got one more point. What's that? Would it, would it make a difference if we had called um, our local politician? Because I've already called Irene Matheson's office about the uh, Canada Post stuff, and they made like three points. The seniors, the disabled, and um, uh, the price of a stamp. Because I'm, I'm disabled. I'm blind, right? But, uh, you know, if you start going to these community mailboxes, and sometimes you've got three or four hundred community mailboxes, there's no way I'm going to remember what my mailbox is. Ron, got- let's just look at you. You're, you're blind. Uh, and that's what we've heard in terms of the impact. Forget about the finances and uh, how Canada Post is driving up a huge debt. Uh, the pension, uh, the uh, the underfunded pensions are a huge issue. You're just saying, wait a minute, I'm blind, I rely on the mail. What are you going to do, Ron? Well, in the wintertime, it'll be harder to do than they would in the regular summertime, right? You know, when they uh, shovel the snow, where do they put the sh- where do they put the snow? At the side of the road. They'd be putting it right in front of the mailbox. You know, it causes... I'm just thinking of... I'm just getting used to a community mailbox. you got cars stopping there all day long. All that fuel that's being burned, uh, wear and tear on the car, uh, danger of people crossing the street to get their mail. It's such a hassle when you could have one postal carrier going around and eliminating all of that, but it doesn't pay. Bob Metz 
said this on the show a couple of years ago about the uh, wages. Let's just pay everybody a million dollars and see who survives. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Bob, uh, you know, some people find him very annoying. No, said, I like the guy. Well, hang on. People sometimes say, who's that guy who's so annoying and he's so arrogant? Kern was right. I have lived with humans so long, I no longer think like a Klingon. For a long time, I have tried to walk the line between the Empire and the Federation. I told myself I could live in either world, that it was my choice. But the truth is, I cannot go back to the Empire. Do you want to go back? But my brother does not even have this. For him, there is no future without the Empire. No life. It sounds like you're thinking of carrying out the Moktavor ritual again. No. I was able to do it once by telling myself it was an honorable Klingon ritual. But now I cannot help but think of it as humans do. As murder. You are listening to Just Right on WBCQ 5.110 MHz, where on this New Year's edition we are listening in on some past open line talk shows involving myself and in this upcoming case, a few others who have been associated with Just Right. As you might have guessed from what we just heard in our Deep Space Nine selection, we're about to touch upon an issue highly sensitive these days the issue of Islamist terrorism and how to reconcile that with the broader issue of Muslim immigration and residency in the West. On October 21, 2014, a very unusual broadcast of Andy Utman's show was aired not long after Canada's first encounter with what came to be called a domestically radicalized Islamist terrorist act. The following open line selection from that day is all the more significant for us here at Just Right than many others I could immediately bring to mind. Not only is the issue being discussed, the very one that seems to have resulted in this show being suspended from CHRW FM radio here in London, but it also features two other well-known Muslim voices, both who have appeared on Just Right in the past, Tarek Fatah and Salim Mansour. Even though one sits more on the left side of the spectrum than the other, while the other is far more to the right, when it comes to a mutual appreciation of Western culture and values, and the accompanying appreciation of how political Islam and Sharia law are diametrically opposed to those values, these are two voices from the Muslim community who see eye to eye on that narrow range of focus. Time simply doesn't allow for us to present their entire discussion and debate in this case because the full original discussion ran for at least an hour, and what we're about to hear is a heavily edited version of the original full discussion. After delivering a scathing condemnation of Canadian authorities regarding known ISIL sympathizers allowed back into Canada and warning of others in the country, Tarek Fatah apparently raised the ire of Caller Joseph, another Muslim who apparently did not share his perspective. Here's how that conversation went. My wife now faces the fact, as he, as he says, 
uh, and I work, I've worked for 35 years, I've contributed to this country, and this is proudly my Canada. It's proudly my citizenship. It's proudly my passport. And I don't appreciate neither you nor him putting me and my wife at jeopardy for somebody walking up to me and Tim Hortons saying, are you one of those Muslims that are going to kill us? You guys are generalizing. There's some bigotry going on here, sir. What did you think of his, when he talked that way, he gave the example of the three young women, black Muslim women in Toronto, who went to be part of ISIL and were brought back, and they have been put in the care of their parents instead I of... Have, I have no knowledge of the case, however... Front, however, front page. The RCMP, this, this didn't let them go, as he said, because of the hijabi. No, they are under pressure. They are, I'm sure they conducted the investigation, sir, and I'm sure they are, uh, they are aware of the, one, uh, the, the, you know, yeah, the, the, the Charter of Rights that we have here in Canada and have had for the past 30 years. So have, 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 they, uh, have they freed them for, uh, for no reason? Probably not. Are they, should they be under the IVRCP and CSIS? Of course. As well as their, as well as their, uh, uh, their parents. I have no room, no room whatsoever for ISIS in this country. I have no room for ISIS as a Sunni Muslim. But again, the Canadian public has to educate themselves about the history of the Middle East, sir. That includes the, the Israeli conflict. That includes the Sunni conflict. That includes the Shia. The worst thing that ever happened to the Middle East, sir. I'm going to tell you that is the disposition of, of Saddam Hussein. Yes, he was the balance of that country because he knew. He knew how to handle the Shia population, how to handle the Kurds, how to handle the... Uh, the you're going to call me, your, your people, and Bob Metz, your other self-appointed uh, uh, caller, is going to call and, and, and uh, put me down. That's fine. But unfortunately, unfortunately, there is a disconnect in the education of how Western, uh, the Western public looks at the uh, Middle East crisis and at the Middle East history. Yosef, uh, I appreciate the call, okay? I have to be fair to other callers. If you have more to say, call me back. Uh, Josie, thanks for waiting. Yes. Um, I, um, the point I believe, uh, Tariq Fatah, if I pronounce that correctly, yep. the point I believe he's trying to make is that we are asleep at the switch and that um, I've always known Canadians, uh, I'm born and raised Canadian, to be complacent. And um, there is a real, definite real threat. Uh, I just want to say briefly, um, during World War II, my paternal grandparents had to report to the RCMP every month, and they didn't have a problem with that. They had nothing to hide. So it's not targeting all Muslims. It's just being able to track those who uh, appear to be fundam fundamentalists. I think the point that Tariq Fatah was making is you got these three uh, black Muslim uh, uh, women who sympathize with ISIL. That was the point. Not that they were black and that they were Muslim, but he says uh, because they uh, uh, are black and are, are, are Muslim and wear the hijab, uh, they do something that we think is horrendous, sympathize with ISIL, but because they're black and Muslim, we have them come back to the country and we just put them in the care of their parents. Well, exactly. Um, there's a great article by Robert uh, Sibley of the Ottawa Citizen uh, from March of this year. And it's about a debate between Doug Saunders and Salim Mansour about Muslim Im immigration. And Salim Mansour um, states that um, approximately, or about 4% of Muslims in Canada, say 100,000, willingly identify with extremists and jihadists, justifying violence in the name of Islam. So, you know, we have to be 
wake up and be uh, become more aware of what's going on in the world. Josie, do you think what happened uh, near that military base in Quebec could happen here in London? Uh, yes, I do believe it could happen anywhere, anytime. Josie, I thank you for your call. Very, very interesting. Even before Bob Metz calls, one of our callers says, yeah, and Bob Metz is probably going to call, and he's probably going to put me down. Uh, did you hear that call, Bob? I did indeed. <laughs> and I'm not calling to put Yosef down. I was cheering him on. And I, as far as his call today went, I, I agreed with virtually every word. And I'm not sure what it was he heard me say or seen me associated with that he thinks would, would differ from that. I kind of liked what he had to say. Yeah, I thought so, too. But go ahead. What's the point you'd like to make? Well, ju just to address that issue, you know, I've had the pleasure of also interviewing uh, Tarek Fatah and Salim Mansour and Rahil Raza and many, many members of the Muslim community who are very much pro-democracy and anti-theocracy, and that's really what the, what the central issue always is. And one must always make a distinction between Muslims and political Islam. And I can tell you on my own uh, show that I do up at CHRW, I had Salim Mansour on a few weeks ago, and he was given a history lesson about ISIS that everyone should hear. It was very, very enlightening. Uh, Bob, I'm going to pull a little magic out of my hat, okay? Hmm. Um, Al, if I can just get you to lock Bob in, because I don't want to lose him there. Okay, you just referred to the history lesson from Salim Mansur. Yeah. It so happens that I have him on the other line, and I'm sure he'd be glad to give us that lesson right now. Hello, Salim. Um, uh, hi, Andy. I, I just heard a little blip um, of, of the thing that you're discussing, and fully stand by with our government's position, what... Prime Minister Harper has said, and we are somewhat troubled by the position taken by the opposition um, that they want to, in a way, muddy the water by saying, you know, we should stand back and let these things be clear. It is absolutely clear what is happening, and I think, you know, the public is far ahead than our politicians. Uh, I just wanted to make that point, but I don't want to get into a history lesson over here. No, no, I understand. Salim, let me just ask you, and then I want to get to, back to Bob, because I have a question for each of you. Salim, let me, let me just, uh, uh, and I want to get back to you with a question, but let me just ask uh, Bob Metz. Bob, what do you think is the appropriate response of, of each of us today to what happened yesterday near, near Montreal? Well, I don't think we need to overreact, but I think that what everyone's doing, including Salim Mansour and Tarek Fatah, uh, they're drawing attention to a certain kind of complacency on the part of officialdom in Canada, not necessarily the citizens. You always get people calling up and reacting, and, and even folks like Yosef, who, who, who was great to hear. Um, but the, there is, a, and of course, we don't really know what's going on in the background as far as what the police are actually doing. We're getting early news reports, and I always hate reacting to very early news reports. But in any case, we have to be on the alert, and we have to be aware that there is a real threat out there. There is political Islam. There is obviously open and, and stated objectives on the part of many people within that community, and we just have to be uh, vigilant about this and be prepared. I mean, we, uh, how, how, how do you do that, though? I mean, how do you do that here in London, Ontario? You, you watch... Well, you don't do it by what we're doing now, which is um, 
this complacency that I'm talking about, not dealing with the ideas, not addressing ideas. You know, I can pick up the London Free Press every day and, and see explosions in the Mideast caused by this battle or that battle, all kinds of them going on. And it's not very educational in terms of what people in the West are understanding. All they're going is, oh, man, that's a bunch of crazy people over there, and leave them to it, just leave me out of this. And that's almost how Canadians want to react. Salim, let me ask you the same question. What is the appropriate response uh, mentally and in other ways to, to the incident yesterday near Montreal? Well, the appropriate response, I don't know, could be many, but one of the responses would be, as Bob is talking about, I mean, you know, we are not uh, people in the security forces, we're not people in the government, we're just common citizens. And as common citizens, we are talking to each other, and just as I picked up the phone and called you. And I think the appropriate thing is not to panic, but to seriously think and read and study what is happening and, and not get messed up with political correctness. Uh, let, that is where let me, our problem lies. Let me, let me share. In a state of war, and I've been talking about this for quite some time, you know, I've been written, right, uh, uh, I've written about this. We're in a state of war. We might not be at war, but uh, the people um, uh, have declared war upon us. Let me let me share and, something. And we need to be clear about that. And 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 this is a different sort of war. It is not a war that we see in 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 uh, Hollywood productions. This is a sort of war that is asymmetrical. That is one in which an ideology is operating, and and that ideology is attracting young people. Now look at this. I mean. People are going to study Martin Rulo, uh, and they don't want to take too much of your time. There will be a great deal of study mean, and people, forensic psychologists and others will go into his life and try to find out who he is, where he came from, his family, what he read, what was his computer activity, and so on and so forth. But obviously this guy, Martin Rulo, was not crazy. He just converted. He announced that conversion to Islam. His name he took as, as Martin Ahmadi. I converted, and and so he converted. The prime minister said that this is an event of radicalization, but radicalization to what? To become a vegetarian? Radicalization to become, you know, uh, uh, obsessed with some sort of sexuality? Radicalization to what? Clearly this is radicalization of Islamist terror that is going on around the world, and we need to. We need from the highest office in our country down to our city aldermen and people running for the office on October 27 next month to be clear about it. I mean, that's the question of vigilance, that we're dealing with this virus. It's like an Ebola virus, and it's right in our midst. A democracy works on a matter of trust, you know. To give you a quick example, you and I drive, we get onto the 401, and we trust our fellow drivers in the 401 that they are driving sanely, and they are driving according to the rules of uh, highway driving and city driving, that they're properly licensed, and that they will not swerve and hit us on the road. We have to trust each other in an open democracy like this. Okay, Salim, uh, I want to uh, pl- get out because this is just more of this discussion about our attitudes and multiculturalism run amok. Just play, if you would, Al, the, the, uh, my interview with Tariq Fatah, uh, Fata, the first one minute. I asked him how concerned he is about what's happening in Quebec, and listen to what he said in the first minute about what he's concerned about. Here we go. Well, I'm more concerned about the news that three ISIS recruits have been freed in Toronto by the RCMP. Uh, Saturday morning, uh, Toronto Star had the story, and subsequently not a single newspaper 
the radio station or TV news has covered the story. These are three Toronto teenage girls who left to join uh, the jihad in, uh, and were apprehended in Turkey. And RCMP arranged for them to bring back uh, to Canada. And instead of arresting them and charging them, uh, they went through the multicultural route and released the three girls in the care of the parents. Okay, let me get reaction to that uh, story. I'm sure you saw it in the Toronto Star on Saturday, as I did. Uh, first, uh, Salim. Yeah, I'm extremely concerned about it, about our our authorities. And I think our authorities are themselves confused. We are in a very confusing time. So I'm extremely concerned about our authorities, how they are dealing with this situation. This is where our public discussion becomes a factor, because that pulls the authorities to respond. Look, Andy, the authorities, apart from the story that you just played out with Tariq Fatah, the authorities, and here I'm talking about the RCMP, the CSIS, the uh, other police agencies, etc., they are going, knocking at the door of mosques and talking to organizations in the mainstream Muslim community that have been historically in denial of the situation, covering up the situation. And they are asking these organizations to be responsible and to be, you know, participate in identifying and, and, and preempting the situation that we find ourselves in. I think the RCMP and all the other security organizations have to, the word is outreach, but I mean by here to reach further than the established mosque and other organization that exists, which I call historical legacy environment connected with Muslim Brotherhood. Our society is penetrated by Muslim Brotherhood. Salim, let me jump in because we're almost out of time. As you can see, we're coming to the top of the hour. Bob Metz, being a radio host himself, knows that. Bob, uh, just one minute, if you could. What should we have done in the situation in Toronto with these three girls bringing them back uh, when they're obvious ISIS, uh, uh, ISIL sympathizers? Well, again, this appears to be one of those uh, issues of official complacency that I was talking about earlier. But, you know, come, coming back to the beginning of the conversation with Yosef, I kind of like his story. I think he has it right, at least based on what we know so far. He says, surely they've checked them out to some degree, and I think they're doing a lot of what, what Salim has already suggested. We are out of time. Bob Metz, thank you so much. Salim Mansur, thank you so much. Uh, when we return on the other side of our upcoming bumper, we shall plunge immediately into three separate open-line calls I made to three different talk show hosts on three different days. CKTB AM 610's Tom McConnell on October 29th, 14, out of St. Catharines. Andrew Lawton on CFPL AM 980 in London on October 18th, 2013, and then to Andy Ootman on CJBK 1290 in London on October 27th, 2014. All on different days, different years, but all on the general themes of voting, democracy, and government. I must say, Humphrey, these facts are a frightening indictment of bureaucratic sloppiness and self-indulgence. But as you'll see, they do give us enormous scope for some really dramatic economies. Good chap. I have here two files, one on manpower, one buildings. Let's start with the buildings. Chadwick House, West Audley Street. A huge building, only a handful of people working there. Yes. I'm so sorry. I do happen to know about Chadwick House. What do you know? 
Well, it's certainly unused at the moment, but it is the designated office for the new Commission for the Environment, and we're actually wondering if it's going to be big enough when all the staff move in. <laughs> what about Ladysmith Buildings, Walthamster? Apparently that's completely empty. Of course. <laughs> A security minister, I can say no more. <laughs> you mean MI6? <clears throat> What's that supposed to mean? We do not admit that MI6 exists. Oh, everybody knows it exists. Nevertheless, we do not admit it. Not everyone round this table has been vetted. Sounds like something you do to cats. <laughs> Smith House is top secret. How can a seven-storey building in Walthamstow be top secret? <laughs> Where there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> All right, what about Wellington House and Westminster Old Hall, eh? Wellington House, Hyde Park Road, estimated value seven and a half million pounds. Hmm. Westminster Old Hall, Sackville Square, estimated value 11 million pounds. Each building with a tiny staff and both filled, apparently, entirely with filing cabinets. May I ask the source of these valuations? Going rate for office property in the area. Ah, yes, but neither of these properties would fetch the going rate. Why not? Well, Wellington House has no fire escape or fire doors, and the fabric of the building wouldn't stand the alteration, so it can't be used as offices. Then how are you able to use them? Yeah. Well, government buildings do not require fire safety clearance. Why <laughs> not? Well, perhaps because Her Majesty's civil servants are not easily inflamed. <laughs> you say? <laughs> The remarkable Robert Metz. How are you? Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm. A, were you a candidate in this election? No, I was not. Okay. You usually are either at the provincial or federal election. Um, I don't run. I'm just with the Freedom Party. Okay, okay, okay. Oh, you don't even run anymore. All right. Uh, should people be fined or rewarded for doing their civic duty of going to the polling station and marking off a ballot? I think it's a monstrous suggestion. I think it's totally undemocratic. People confuse voting with democracy, and that's not what democracy is. It's one aspect of democracy. Well, no, because totalitarian countries have voting. Well, that's true. You know, that's I, true. I, I, In our society, that's what a citizen thinks the, the least they can do. Well, sure, but why do you want more voters? It doesn't change anything. The percentages will all come out the same. If you've got only two candidates to vote for or only yeah. three, you're only going to get those choices. And I disagree with the concept voting is a responsibility, not a right. It's a right. What about, and, why do you think Australia did it and others are looking to it? Well, because because they're, most countries are turning more and more leftward. And as they become less... less um, you know, attached to the people, they want to force people to vote to get a false sense of consent to being governed. Mm -hmm. That's what happened. I mean, I, I keep hearing, well, you know, we sent our soldiers over to die for the right to vote. No, we didn't. The country we went to fight voted those, those totalitarians in. It's not about voting. Democracy is about being equal before and under the law with our legislators. The guy that makes the laws is also subject to them. The guy, you know, and that's what it's about. And having a right, it doesn't matter what right you're talking about, if it's a right, it means you have the right to say no. Now let me ask you, and I only have a minute here. Sure. 
Do you think then that all this hand wringing about voter turnout in London it was the highest in twenty years, but it was still forty three percent. Niagara in St. Catharines we had a competitive mayor's race and it was only thirty four percent. So all the hand wringing and navel gazing is for naught because in the end, does it really matter? I, I, and again, I, I'm looking at, I don't want uninformed voters making the choice. I'd like people who are interested and re- informed deciding who makes up the rules. You know, I agree, and it's almost impossible to be informed unless you do a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Can you trust what the candidates are telling you? Are they telling you the truth? Are, does what they say make sense? It's a much more complex thing than just, you know, yeah. picking a name on a ballot. Yeah. And the idea of making it a duty is, is abhorrent to me because that, you might as well throw democracy out the window. What the heck do, what do we, why do we bother even voting then? You know where it's forced to vote? North Korea. In fact, there was a fabulous book I just read where the guy had left the country and he had to get back because they, he knew if he didn't get back in time for voting that he'd be found out that he'd left the country and his family would be punished. So there's where we have forced voting. Bob, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. 9.30 is our time. News is next. I don't think that they can buy your vote per se. But there are other factors here. Advertising and that sort of stuff isn't just used to make people vote a certain way. It's used to encourage people to vote or discourage people to vote. If perhaps, and I'm just using a hypothetical example here, but if I think a certain number of things and someone who represents a party that doesn't agree with that decides to run an ad campaign talking about why the party that I would probably agree with maybe isn't as good as I think, they may not make me vote against them, but they may make me stay home. And that's why voter turnout is oftentimes the more important number than who voted for whom. Joining us now, Bob Metz from the uh, Freedom Party of Ontario. Uh, Bob, you're, you're a big capitalist. You must love this. Yeah, and, and you know, capitalism is an idea. And so is socialism. And so are all the money-oriented issues. They're all ideas. And that's what people are fighting for. Now, capitalism is an idea about a separation of state and economics and, and the determination of prices and telling you who, who you can and can't buy from. It's an idea that prohibits force and fraud in economic po- uh, pricing. And it's an idea that depends on a government that operates on a similar principle. Now, you know, advertising is not about ideas per se. Advertising is about um, getting your attention and trying to get you to look at an idea. It's not about if you can express a, a, a reasonable and honest uh, part of your idea in your advertising, all the better. But uh, that's not always possible in a 10, 20, 30-second blip, if you know what I mean. Well, absolutely, and, and this is why I find it so, uh, so hypocritical that so many people who berate politicians that use money and politicians that use ads are the same people that are participating in consumerism in every other element of their life, whether it's they're choosing what store to go to based on an ad or well, whether this, they're... This is, this is the tragedy I think your guest was trying to bring out, that, that people are looking at, at our process of democracy as some kind of consumer item that you buy off a shelf and you can just buy free health care and all that stuff. But, that, but if, it, if that shows anything, it shows that, that it is about greed. I'm sorry. Um, if we really wanted to help those who couldn't help themselves, we wouldn't have universal social programs. We wouldn't have universal health care. We would only direct our health care dollars, tax dollars, to the people who needed the help. Yeah, and unfortunately that concept seems to be lost on most people. Right, and we would also have a system that would be an insurance plan, not a free-for-all. There's no insurance called insurance in any honest definition of the word that includes everything free. 
Insurance is protection against disaster and catastrophe. And now we're heading into a disaster and catastrophe because we just don't understand the definition of that one word. <laughs> so, you know, our health care system could work if it was an insurance plan, but it's not. It's free for all. Yeah, and that's, uh, well, some changes that we're seeing in the U.S. taking uh, place right now as well. Bob Matz, thank you so much for, uh, for, for your time. Let's go back to the phones. Uh, Jackie, what's on your mind today, Jackie? Hey, I just don't want to vote this time because last time I voted for someone who didn't get in. And, and anyways, uh, whoever gets in, they lie uh, and do what they want to do once they're in. Well, that's pretty harsh, Jackie. And, Everybody who gets in lies? Is that what you're and, saying? Yeah, because uh, Joe Fontana didn't find jobs for everyone. Everyone, like, jobs left London. So you're not voting today, Jackie? No. Okay, well, uh, that is your choice. Uh, let's go to Bob Metz. Hi, Bob. Hi, Andy. I just wanted to comment on that gentleman who suggested a $200 penalty for not voting. I think that's the most undemocratic thing I've heard suggested in a long time. It's monstrous. You know, to have a freedom or to have a right always means that you don't have to do whatever that thing is. If you're talking about freedom of religion or the right to practice a religion, that can only have meaning if you aren't forced to practice a religion. That's all it can mean, is always the right to say no. So they're doing it wrong in Argentina. Absolutely. That's not a democracy in any sense of the word. Democracy is not even about voting. Democracy is about the legislators and the people who, who govern us being subject to the exact same rules and the exact same consequences as each of us as voters. It's got nothing to do with voting. Voting is a whole separate thing. And having more voters doesn't equal more democracy. In fact, encouraging more voters out... History has proven that the percentages always come out the same. If you've only got five candidates to vote for, you're only going to have five choices to begin with in any case. And, and just as a matter of, um, of straightening the record out on some other things, this idea that people can spend whatever they want on campaigns, that's not the case. There are limits on spending, municipally, federally, provincially. Um, I know that in municipally, the spouse and the candidate can give as much as they want, but they can't spend as much as they want. And uh, I think you can only spend so much plus, I think it's 85 cents per voter registered in your riding. Is right, a formula. right. But I think you would agree that the way things are set up now, and we have one candidate who's proving it, that uh, having the financial means to buy significant advertising... Well, we have several candidates proving it, and I would say that Matt Brown's one, too. He had the financial means, whether he got it from one person or a hundred people. How do we know a hundred people weren't all just union reps putting their money in? How do you know that the, that the candidate who's voting wasn't backed up by one big corporation or one big supporter? It's all the same thing. The only legitimate place I see placing a limit on an election, which is not about democracy, but about the voting process, is in the spending arena, but not in the raising money arena. Let I don't me... think there's... Let me ask you, all those things being said, mm -hmm. uh, Bob, uh, what's your report card on democracy today in the city uh, of London from what you've seen and heard? Well, it, it's, it's getting worse all the time. I think my biggest fear locally is that governments are, are, are expanding beyond their legitimate democratically established jurisdictions that they began with. Give me an example. Well, the city... Um, um, supporting any kind of entertainment venue. Think about it. 
when when the government, by the way, and and the JLC or the Budweiser Center is still losing money for the city, and yet there's all kinds of politicians saying it's a great deal for us and we should emulate it. But the thing is, consider that every penny that's spent on that is coming out of somebody's pocket who has to pay for their home. It's on the property tax base. So suddenly, the right to live in your home depends on how much some politician is spending on entertainment when that's not even the jurisdiction legitimate to a municipality. Would you agree, though, that most people uh, applaud the decision to build uh, the the JLC, now the Budweiser uh, Gardens, because of how well it's worked out, and they would say that was well, a very good investment? The people who believe it was a good investment will think that way. The people who know better won't. And as I say, I had Orlando Zampronio on my show not so long ago. He said it's the biggest disaster from a financial point of view because all of the capital costs are hidden in the tax base. It's part of our debt, and we're still paying $2.5 million a year on that debt. Also, the, mo- the money made at the JLC goes to big acts that all leave the country. We're funneling millions of dollars out of the city. And, and it's, it's, it's just not what it appears to be at all. Never, never should government be used for anything beyond governing. That's well, the then job you, of government. Then you must be delighted that the Ontario and the federal governments have refused to give Unifor what they wanted, so they're taking their new engine plant to Mexico. Um, I'm not delighted about it. But I'm just saying that, that when they get in beyond their jurisdictions in that sense, that's where all the trouble begins. And we're watching accumulated deficits piling up everywhere at every level of government. I don't see that as a sign of good governance. Okay, so all of that being said, is democracy uh, doing itself proud in London today? Well, I can't say as to if you're speaking of the vote. I wouldn't call that democracy. Are, are a lot of people voting? Yeah, do we still have a right to vote? Not yes. So I would say yes. As far as the voting aspect goes, we're still a democracy. The minute one of these rules comes in that says we have to vote or suffer a penalty if we don't, then we're no longer a democracy, even though we vote. Soviet Union votes. Always, always did. Yeah. No, I hear, hear you loud and clear. Great point. Thank you so much for coming up to the CTV 430 News Update when we come back. on the. So there you have it. Just a taste of some of my regular wanderings and meanderings into the strange and unique world of daytime talk show radio. I imagine this might be a feature we, we could have a chance to incorporate more frequently in the future broadcasts of Just Right. Uh, just a thought right now, but let us know what you think. However, that's all we've got time for today on today's year-end broadcast of Just Right. With 2016 now just getting underway, we can look forward to a whole new year facing a lot of the same old issues. Hopefully, though, with some creative and fresh ideas to match the new in New Year's itself. But don't don't hold your breath waiting. Use it to express yourself on the talk shows in your hometown wherever you might be. And until then, have a happy new year and join us again next year, one week from today, when we will continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. How about Westminster Old Hall? Class 1, registered building. Can't change current user designation. See? 3 to 17 Beaconsfield Street. Ah, yes. Now, that has a three-level reinforced concrete basement. So? 
It is there in case. <laughs> well, you know, Minister, emergency government headquarters, if and when. If and when what? <laughs> if and when, you know what. What? <laughs> if and when, you know what. I don't know what. What? <laughs> what? What do you mean, if and when, you know what? <laughs> Minister, when the chips are down, the balloon goes up and the lights go out. <laughs> there has to be somewhere to carry on government, even if everything else stops. Why? <laughs> well, government doesn't stop just because the whole country's been destroyed. 